Get our Bibles out, turning once again to John chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to use the Pew Bible in front of you. We're going to be on page 896 and 97. Just a heads up for the parents, after uh, my sermon, we're going to sing, He Will Hold Me Fast, and then we'll have uh, baptisms. Before the baptisms start, but after the song, we're going to ask you to go ahead and get your kids from the gospel kids so that all the children and all the gospel kids workers can be in here and, and see the baptisms, okay? You can do that during the song or you can do that during the testimonies. Either way, just after I finish preaching, make sure you head to the gospel kids Get your children's, bring them in here, okay? We're going to be in John chapter 10, verses 22 uh, through 30 today. Now, let's begin just by looking at the text. Look at John chapter 10, verses 22 through 23. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So this week's text finds us once again, as we have found Jesus so many times, walking in the temple courts. And as Jesus is walking through the temple during this festival of dedication, a crowd begins to gather around him. Look at verse 24. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long Will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. So my feel of this crowd is that it's not particularly hostile, nor is it particularly friendly. The crowd seems more than anything to sort of be exasperated. The crowd seems to be at their wit's end of trying to make sense of who this Jesus character is who comes into Jerusalem does stuff, says stuff, stirs up a controversy, and then leaves and comes back and does it all over again. So they see Jesus here in the temple, not during a particularly busy time in the temple. This feast of dedication was not one of the feasts that all the Jews would have had to come into the temple to celebrate. They were allowed to celebrate this in their homes if they chose. It finds Jesus here with not that many people, but there are enough people who they hear that Jesus is in town And they come to him and they go, listen, man, enough is enough. No more word games, no more illustrations, no more stories. Are you or are you not the Messiah? Just tell us, yes or no, we'll do. Now look at Jesus' response in verse 25 as we silence our phones. Jesus answered them. I told you, and you do not believe me. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe me because you are not of my Father's sheep. You are not among my sheep. So Jesus' response is pretty straightforward. He says, you are asking me to tell you who I am, but I've already been telling you exactly who I am. I've been telling you through the The usage of imagery that I've been applying to myself, right? He says, I'm the eternal wellspring. 
I'm the, the bread of life. If you eat of me, you will never hunger again. <clears throat> he says, I've been telling you in my use of titles. I've been, I've been using titles for myself that are only used of Yahweh in the Old Testament, like the Good Shepherd or the Light of the World. He says, I've been telling you who I am through the signs and wonders that I've been performing in your midst. You yourselves recognize that no one could do the things that I'm doing unless he's from heaven. I've already told you so many ways exactly who I am, and yet you don't believe me. And then in verse 26, which we already read, but we're going to look there again, Jesus tells these unbelieving Jews why it is that they don't believe. Just look back at verse 26. He says, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. We talked about this last week. We kind of summarized it by saying, we tend to think that people will belong once they believe, but kind of behind the scenes with with God's eternal work of salvation and how he's working everything out, the answer is really, you don't believe because you don't belong. I meet, for people, uh, I meet with people for lunch often. That's kind of my discipleship time. You're busy, I'm busy, but we both have to eat, so let's go do lunch. Um, one of my favorite places in town is Rock and Roll Sushi for two reasons. Number one, they have a lunch special that makes sushi affordable. And number two, they put so much junk on top of their sushi that you can't actually taste the fish. You know what I'm saying? So <laughs> that's my kind of sushi. Now... Uh, the one downside of rock and roll sushi is that they play the same, you know, their music based, right? That's their theme. So they play the same 20, 25 songs over and over and over again. And so I can't tell you how many times I've been eating a red hot chili pepper roll, listening to the red hot chili pepper, the same red hot chili pepper song just again and again and again. The first half of John's gospel, which we're about to come to the end of next week and maybe the week after will be kind of us coming to the end of the first half. The first half of John's gospel kind of feels like that. It's, it's the same song over and over again, right? And here's how the song goes. Jesus comes and he does a, a sign and he delivers a message. And then this causes a controversy amongst the Jews, And then the Jews, even though many of them profess to believe in Jesus, ultimately what we see in John is that most of them don't believe in Jesus. And then finally, Jesus ends up explaining to the Jews exactly why it is that they don't believe. So you can just see this going all the way back to chapter 2, but we can just start in chapter 3. Jesus tells Nicodemus in John chapter 3, you don't believe because you haven't received the gift of being born again. Later in John chapter 3, Jesus tells the people who don't believe in him, you don't believe because you love the darkness and hate the light. I'm the light. Later in John chapter 6, Jesus says, you don't believe because the Father has not given you to me. A little bit later in that same chapter, Jesus says, you do not believe because it has not been granted to you by the Father that you should believe. You can see it in John chapter 8. He says, you do not believe because you are of your father, the devil. What if I came up in the pulpit and said that? (laughs) You know, the unbelievers here, the reason why you don't believe is because you're of your father, Satan. You know, that's what Jesus says. And then here in John chapter 10, verse 26, Jesus tells these unbelieving Jews exactly why they don't believe in him. Because you are not my sheep. And we might think that this would be a good mic drop moment for Jesus, right? Just like, 
Like, they're like, Jesus, what's up? And he's like, oh, I'll tell you what's up. You don't believe because you don't belong. Boom, mic drop, walk away. But Jesus doesn't do that. He goes on in verses 28 and 29 to deliver one of the most encouraging messages in all of the New Testament. Look at verses 28 and 29. Jesus says, I give them eternal life, speaking about his sheep, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So I've got four points for you this morning drawn primarily from verses 28 through 30, and we're going to read 30 in a bit. But before I do that, this promise that Jesus makes in in verse 28, this promise of eternal life, is something that I, I want to make sure that we conceptually understand because all four of our points are going to flow out of our understanding of what eternal life is. So if you're wondering if I'm trying to sneakily get a fifth point in, the answer is yes, I am. So... Up to this point, we've already considered the concept of eternal life uh, multiple times. It just comes up over and over again in the first half of John's gospel. No less than 13 times do we find the phrase eternal life in the first nine chapters. So it's a, it's a prominent theme. Now, the emphasis, eternal life, thus far in John's gospel has been less on eternal and more on life. Jesus, in John channeling Jesus to us, has been trying to show us what it means to live in Jesus. But now, as we get into John 10, the emphasis shifts. Now that we understand what it means to have life in Christ, John wants us to understand what the eternal part of eternal life really means. Now, I'm going to ask you to mark your Bibles. I know some of you would rather die then mark up your nice, clean, white pages, you know, in your Bibles. But if you don't mind marking in your Bibles, now's the time to do it. Get your pen or your highlighter or your marker and go to verse 28 with me. <clears throat> in verse 28, Jesus says, I give them eternal life. I want you to find some way to demarcate eternal and life. So in my Bible, in my study, I have eternal circled and then I have life underlined, Okay. And then Jesus says, and, and then he goes on to basically say the same thing in a different way, and they will never perish. So whatever you did to demarcate eternal, I want you to do the same thing to never, and whatever you did to life, I want you to do that same thing to perish. I want you to do this so that when you come back to this verse over and over again, hopefully, as you read Scripture you see the logic that Jesus is employing here. He's saying, what I want you to understand when I say I'm giving you eternal life is that you will never perish. Eternal and never and life and perish are paired together. That's Jesus' logic. Anyone who receives eternal life will never die. That's what it means to have eternal life. The question of whether or not Christians can lose their salvation, which is just eternal life, can Christians lose their eternal life, it it fundamentally misunderstands the eternal in eternal life, right? There is no gradation 
of eternality. That's not a thing. Eternality is binary. It's, it's either black or white. It's either on or off. You either will live forever, that's what eternal means, or you will at some later point in the future die. There's no third option. So as I stand here this morning, and as I get ready to preach these verses, the, the words of Jesus about you living forever, you being a Christian, to be even more clear, you being a regenerate Christian, not a nominal Christian, not a cultural Christian, not I think I'm a Christian because I try to do the right thing and I'd help anybody and I'd take my shirt off my back to help a stranger and I got baptized when I was at church camp. No, no, no. I mean, a born again, I have a personal saving relationship with Jesus because I've trusted in his death, burial, and resurrection, Christian. You, Christian, if you have received this new birth, you cannot in any way lose your life. Now, <clears throat> I want us to spend the rest of our time this morning considering four reasons that Jesus gives in verses 28 through 30 for why you can never lose your life. Four reasons why you can have a rock-solid, unbreakable, unshakable confidence in the promise of Jesus' words in this text. Right? I want to spend the next 40 minutes preparing you for the next 40 years of your Christian walk, if the Lord is kind enough to give you that. And I know some of you are like hoping for more than 40, right? Although it's better to depart and be with Christ, so. I want this sermon to stick with you. I'm not saying it's going to be the best sermon. See, it's not going to be very good. I can't stop drinking water. I'm not saying that this is going to be the best sermon. What I'm saying is, even if you don't remember eating this meal, I want this meal to constitute you in such a way that the truths that you receive from Jesus here are part of you. I want you to remember these truths when you, in the future, perhaps find yourself in a season of doubt, struggling to, to believe the gospel. I want you to come back to these verses and cling desperately to them. When your marriage is perhaps struggling and it seems like your spouse is drifting away from Jesus, I want you to come back and pray these verses over your husband or wife. When your believing children seem to be going through a season of rebellion and moving away from the Lord, I want you to come back and read these verses. Husband and wife, sit down together, read these verses, and tell yourself, if my child is truly in the flock of Christ, he will come back. She will never be lost. So here are the four points. The believer will never perish, ellipses, because Jesus will not fail his mission. The believer will never perish because Jesus gives us eternal life. The believer will never perish because Jesus holds us in his hand. And the believer will never perish because Jesus and the Father are one. If you didn't get all those, we'll give them again as we go. Point number one. <clears throat> Jesus <clears throat> will not fail his mission. That is why the believer will never perish. What do I mean when I say that Jesus will not fail his mission? Look at verse 29. Jesus says, My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. 
That language of given them, who's them? them? Them is the sheep that Jesus is going to save, right? And Jesus says, the Father has given them to me. Well, when did he give them? He gave them in eternity's past. He sent Jesus down to save the sheep that his Father gave him when he wrote their name in the Lamb's Book of Life, which we talked about last week, right? This is the mission of the Son as received from the Father, you see the same idea in John chapter 6. Just flip back with me. Save your, save your spot in John 10. Flip back to John 6. Look at verses 38-40. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. And that sent language, that's the language of missiology, of mission. So what is the will that Jesus was sent for? Here it is, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. That's the sheep. But raise it up on the last day, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. So why did Jesus come from heaven? This is, this is a big question. Why did God, the second person of the Trinity, come down in the flesh to save us, His sheep? It is the will of the Father for the Son to save the sheep. This is huge. This is huge. The will of God cannot be broken. This is the eternal, immovable, unbreakable will of God that all of the sheep that He's given to the Son will be saved without exception. You can't think of a sheep that was given to the Son by the Father that will not be raised on the last day. So if you come up to me and you ask me, as, as many have, Sean, pastor, can, can, can a Christian lose his salvation? My answer will probably be a little tongue-in-cheek. It'll be something like this. Well, that depends. Can a Christian ever come up against a force that is greater than the will of God? And the answer, of course, is no. Is it possible for Jesus to fail his mission? Absolutely not. As the, the Lord says through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 14, as I have planned, so shall it be. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. He says it even more emphatically in Isaiah 46, and I love the way he begins this. In Isaiah 46, he begins like this, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind. I'm not saying that. That's God. He's saying this. Recall it to mind. Don't forget who you're talking to. I am God. And there is no other. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from the ancient times, things not yet done. So he's saying, this is what it means to be me. This is what makes me different than you and all these other masquerading little G-gods. 
I say something's going to happen from way back in eternity's past. I say it's going to happen, and you better believe it. It's going to happen. And then he goes on, and he says, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. So not like you, Dom, not like you, Michael, not like you, Amber, not like you, Jenny. We say things all the time, not like you, Sean. I say things all the time that don't come to pass. I'm not God. God is God. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Jesus says that he has been given the sheep to save. He will do it. And no believer will ever perish that has been given to him. Point number two. The believer will never perish because Jesus gives us. Gives us. The emphasis here is not on eternal or life. It's not so much on Jesus. It's on gives. He gives us eternal life. Said another way, I want us to see that the reason why we will never perish, that's what it says in verse 28, is because in salvation we are united to Jesus. We are connected to him. Theologians call this the doctrine of our union with Christ. We have been united to Jesus and his eternal life, and because his eternal life can never perish, we will never perish. That's the logic. And uh, in order to understand this point, you need to uh, wrap your arms around a simple yet profound and beautiful truth. Life in Christ comes through union with Christ. Life in Christ comes through union with Christ. So let's think about some of the imagery that uh, Scripture uses when it talks about salvation. One of the things that Scripture uh, often does when it talks about us uh, having life is it talks about uh, us being united to God. Conversely, whenever Scripture talks about death, it tends to talk about us being separated from God, right? Death is this image of our utter separation from God. So death, separation, life, being united, folded into, wrapped up in, connected to, living in. We live in him. He lives in us. This is the reason why the apostle can say in Acts 17 that we all live and move and have our being in God. This is why Jesus will later say in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Life is welling up within him. This is why Jesus can say that only through our connection to him do we live. You can think about it a little bit like a car battery that's dead. You go out, you're late for work, turn the key, nothing, right? You call Spencer, Spencer, what is this, right? Uh, the battery's dead. You find out, well, what do you do? You jump it off. You connect the dead battery to the living battery, and the dead battery comes to life. Now, this analogy breaks down, obviously, right? Because you disconnect the cables and you drive away after that happens, right? For us, we can never disconnect the cables. Only when we are eternally connected to Christ can we eternally receive his infusion of life into our souls. He is life himself. He has always been life. He will always be alive. Listen, if there will ever, 
on earth or in heaven or, or under the earth, or it doesn't matter. If there is ever going to be any life anywhere in the universe, it must come from Jesus. If anyone is ever going to receive the gift of eternal life, it can only come through our connection to the eternal life source. So when Jesus tells us in verse 28 that he gives us eternal life, he's telling us that he is permanently uniting us to himself. Just consider, just if you haven't had this theological framework, now that you do, think about some of the other language that you've heard Jesus use in teaching of salvation and himself, right? So in one place he says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. The life comes through me, the vine, and it goes out to you, the branches who are connected to me, right? Or in John 4, when Jesus says, I am the eternal wellspring, right? He's saying, only once I'm in you can you then never thirst again. Or I am the bread of life. We could just go on and on. Or think about what the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 2.20. He says, it is no longer I who live. Why? Well, because he's dead in sin. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I have no life in myself. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. God, we could just talk about that for an hour. Your dead spirit, lifeless, nothing in itself connected to Christ, comes alive. And you don't become one spirit with the Lord and then lose that. This is why Paul calls Jesus in 1 Corinthians 15 a life-giving spirit. So, let me just say this one more time. Bear with me as I repeat myself, right? Listen, if I have to say it three times and I exasperate half of you by saying it the third time, but just one more person in the congregation gets it on the third time, I'm told that's a, the cost-benefit analysis. I'm fine with that. Let me just make this incredibly clear. Eternal life is life in the eternal Christ. Anyone united to Christ and his life can never perish because God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, to whom they are connected, can never perish. Point number three, the third reason why the believer will never perish is because Jesus holds us in his hand. Look at verse 28 again. Go back to John 10. John 10, verse 28. Jesus says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. He's saying the same thing in all three of those phrases. I give them eternal life, they will never perish, no one will snatch them out of my hand. He's just saying it in three different ways. So what does it mean that we won't be snatched out of Jesus' hand? Let me tell you an embarrassing story about myself. When There's so many to choose from, but for, the, for now, when I was a young Christian reading through John's gospel, when Jesus said this, or whenever someone would quote it, I would always envision like the kung fu master with the pebble in his hand, right? And the young martial arts trainee trying to snatch it out faster than the kung fu master could close his grip. That's what I thought, snatch out, like we're in Jesus' hand, and that's not what Jesus is saying here. This language of, this snatching language, it, it, it's, it's really the language of the use of force, 
right? So this should draw our minds back to the thieves and the robbers and the wolves that Jesus addressed earlier in John chapter 10. The thieves, the robbers, the wolves, they are trying to snatch the sheep. And here in verse 28, Jesus says, although they will never stop trying to snatch you, they will never succeed. They cannot snatch you from my hand. I'm the shepherd. I'm standing here guarding you, protecting you. The, sh- the wolf doesn't matter how big or bad he is. The, the, you know, the thief, it doesn't matter how clever he is. The robber, it doesn't matter how powerful he is. They will not be able to snatch you. Friends, do you understand that if you're a Christian, there is a cosmic war for your soul? That's one of the implications of Jesus' teaching here. You are a sheep and you are under assault. The wolves and the thieves and the robbers want nothing more than to take you out. They want to steal you from the flock. They want to strike the shepherd. They tried that already. Jesus on the cross didn't work. He was killed but came back to life in three days and they were super bummed about that. But if they can't get him, what they want to do is uh, strike the under shepherds in the church, which means, by the way, this isn't in my notes, but let me just say it. It means that you should be in prayer for us, your under shepherds, because you better believe that there's nothing that Satan wants in this whole world more to destroy this church than to take out the elders of this church. Why? Why do they want to strike the shepherds? So that the sheep will scatter. That's the language that Jesus uses. And why, why does a wolf want sheep to scatter? Well, because it's easy picking. To put the matter plainly, the wolves of Satan's fallen kingdom want to kill you and eat you, metaphorically speaking. And this should be scary for the sheep, right? Because sheep are dumb. Sheep are defenseless animals. Sheep are easily stolen, easily scattered, easily killed, and very easily eaten by a wolf. I was watching a a video. I went down the YouTube rabbit hole this week. Somehow I got to a video about honey badgers. So I'm watching this video of this honey badger fight a leopard, right? Real Joe Rogan moment, you know? (laughs) Who's going to win? And the honey badger won. I couldn't believe it. A honey badger is this tiny little thing, you know, 18 to 25 pounds, you know, 10 to 12 inches in length, 18 inches tall. Yes, I did some honey badger research after this, right? And, uh, and he fought off a leopard, a leopard. In case you don't know, leopards are the animals that like jump into rivers and grab alligators and drag them out and eat them, okay? These are like ferocious, like apex predators. And the, the, the badger, the honey badger won. The honey badger is the exact opposite of the sheep. A honey badger looks cute and innocent and defenseless, but it is not. It is very capable of defending itself and taking on any comers. Not sheep. Sheep look cute and defenseless, and they are. We are the sheep. We, if we are going to have any hope or comfort, if we are going to have any feeling of safety in this fallen world, we have to understand that Jesus is our mighty shepherd. His hand will defend us. He is ready to do battle with anyone or anything seeking to snatch us from the flock. 
And there is nothing that Jesus will encounter that will overpower him or outwit him. Whose hand is mightier than the all-omnipotent hand of Jesus? Yes, that's redundant. I did it on purpose. Whose hand is mightier than the mighty hand of Christ? Look at verse 28. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one, no one, no one will snatch them from my hand. Not marauding wolves or thieves or robbers. Not the Pharisees in the days of Jesus or the super apostles in in Paul's ministry or the false prophets in Decatur, Alabama. I know there's been some controversy about a local megachurch in our city doing some pretty crazy stuff and hurting a lot of people. I want you to know that if there are any true Christians in that church, that will not cause them to defect from the faith. Prosperity preachers, Protestant liberals, the woke agenda, doesn't matter. Left, right, up, down, can't snatch. No economic force in this world is so powerful that it can purchase, persuade, or pressure Jesus into relinquishing his single, his sheep. There is no military might in the world that is so numerous or so technologically advanced or so tactically wise that it can somehow invade the sheepfold and carry a sheep away. There is no amount of clever collusion or crafty scheming from the powers of darkness that can outwit Jesus and cause him to relinquish his grip on the sheep. I remember, you remember those competitions where like, you would get, everyone would put their hand on a dirt bike and whoever took their hand off lost and the person who stayed on, it was like a radio competition. You keep your car, hand on the car the longest and you win, right? And like, uh, there's an episode of that 70s show about this and half of the way that they got people to take their hand off the vehicle was just by outwitting them. That's not gonna happen to Jesus. He cannot be, there's nobody more clever than him. You think about history. Think about the Roman emperors in the first few centuries of Christianity. The ones who killed the most Christians, Nero, Valerian, Diocletian. Okay? They killed thousands and thousands of Christians. They fed them to wild beasts. They, they threw them out, had them fight the gladiators. The, the citizenry came and, and tortured them and tied them to bulls and made them run throughout the course of the city. Do you know that in the midst of all of that persecution, there was not one single sheep that was ever lost from the flock of Jesus? You think about modern day emperors like Kim Jong-un, who is still torturing and killing Christians in concentration camps in North Korea. Do you understand that he will never be able to snatch not even one sheep out of the hand of Jesus? Torture them, kill them, he will not be able to snatch them. There has never been a case. Just think about that. There has never been a case of not even one sheep being snatched out of the hand of Jesus, not under the ministries of Pol Pot or Stalin or Mao or whomever. There is no freshman English professor whose sole mission is to deconvert your children. There's no postmodernist philosophy professor who's trying to deconstruct the faith of his students that is so smart and knows so much that they can steal a sheep away from the flock of Jesus. Here is a list of the 10 countries where Christians face the most severe persecution in the world today. North Korea, 
Afghanistan, and by the way, you, these would be good countries to, to pray for as you pray for the persecuted. Somalia, Sudan, Pakistan, Eritrea, Libya, Iraq, Yemen, Iran. Not a single one of these wicked nations has been able to steal one sheep from Jesus, and they will never be able to. Because this matters. Why? Why can't they do it? Why can't they snatch the sheep from the hand of Jesus? Because Jesus and the Father are one. That's point number four. Point number four, the sheep will never perish because Jesus and the Father are one. Now, you may not know it based on your experience of my preaching, but a lot of prep goes into my sermons every week, like a lot. If you've never thought through like what it takes to come up and preach a sermon before, all you do is just, you just pray five minutes before and ask the Holy Spirit to give you something. No, nah, that's not it. Practically speaking, even if you understand everything, you need to make sure that it's well organized, you know? Structure and organization, that's useful. It does not come very easily to me. I struggle with that. Theologically speaking, we need to make sure that we expound the doctrines of Scripture. And uh, those, those doctrines need to be expounded carefully and clearly. That's often very difficult. You can usually do one carefully, but then it's not so clear. Or you can be clear, but then you're not as careful. Okay? These difficult doctrines need to be distilled and simplified, which is harder than you might imagine. You know, your kids come and ask you a question, and you think you can give them the answer. But to try to distill it down to their level is actually pretty hard. A good sermon, of course, needs helpful illustrations, right? See my rock and roll sushi illustration from earlier. Uh, it needs a powerful introduction, which you haven't gotten like the last two weeks. Sorry. Uh, and then a little alliteration along the way helps. You know, the three C's, right? That, you know, conviction, clarity, huh, right? The three C's. That always makes things easier to remember. A helpful sermon should also do a couple of other things. It should help us see how this truth fits into the overall story of the Bible. You should also make sure that no sermon is uh, complete without making sure you preach the gospel, getting the, the, the message back to the, well, the message of the entire universe, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, right? And then, you know, the preacher also has to apply the truth. So assuming we do all that well, we have to make sure that we actually help you see how this matters for your life. Right? So application, application, application. A faithful sermon should be doctrinal but not dry. It should engage your emotions but not be emotional. A good sermon should bring us into the presence of the holiness of God and wound us as it shows us our sin. And then it should take us into the presence of the grace of Jesus Christ and heal us in the wounds that we have been inflicted with. But none of that can happen unless you actually understand the point of the text, right? Uh, we're in this room together not to hear from Sean. We're in this room to hear from Jesus. This is why we do expositional preaching. Expositional preaching just means I don't come up here and riff on my hobby horse. I come up here and I try to just let the text speak for itself. What did God intend to say through this text? This is what is often referred to as exegesis. Not extra Jesus, exegesis. 
Whenever the preacher is exegeting the text, he's trying to understand what the meaning of the text is. Now, why am I telling you all this? I'm telling you all this because I had a really, really hard time exegeting this week's text. Verses 22 through 30. I was really struggling, which, by the way, I don't know if you know, I don't get a pass on preaching on Sunday, even if I didn't really wrap my mind around the text, right? Like, I'm going to be here preaching no matter what. So, Lord... You know, the crunch is on. Please help. I had a really hard time. Let me tell you why. As I turned the text over in my mind again and again, as I read it again and again, it seemed like there were two themes present in this text, and I could not see how they were connected. The two themes were the identity of Jesus as the Messiah and our eternal security. And I could not, for the life of me, See how they were related in the mind of Jesus, the one who presents these two themes. So that matters. (laughs) That really matters. So let me just, I want to invite you into my sermon prep with me, and I want you to try to enter into the struggle of of arriving at the meaning of this text with me. So let's try to follow the logical flow of the text, okay? So the text opens, as you know, with a, a crowd gathering around Jesus demanding to know whether or not he is the Christ. Everyone nod if you're with me. Yes? All right. Then Jesus responds by saying, I've already told you who I am, but you still don't believe me. Everyone with me? And we're all nodding. The the flow is there. Then Jesus says, and the reason why you don't believe me is because you don't belong to me. Everybody tracking? Yes, we're all nodding. Yes. But then in verses 28 and 29, Jesus starts talking about the sheep and their eternal security. Where does that come from? It's like we're driving down the straight line, this logical road. Jesus' identity is the Messiah. I've told you I'm the Messiah. I've given you evidence. You can't believe because you don't belong to me. And then, oh, by the way, sheep, you're really secure in me. It doesn't make sense does not make sense. Well, it does, but it didn't make sense to me. The answer is, of course, right there in the text. just takes a little while to see it. Look at, look at verse 29. Jesus says, after no one will snatch them out of my hand, they're secure, my Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So, the crowd says, Jesus, tell us who you are. Jesus says, I've been telling you who I am, but here, let me tell you just one more time, and let me use eternal security of the sheep to tell you. He says, the sheep are secure in my hand, because my hand is the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. This time, they understand exactly what he's saying. You can see it in verses 31 through 34. Look there. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him, and Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that you are going, we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. 
We're going to talk more about these verses next week. But what I want you to see here this morning is that Jesus is just using this eternal security, which seems like a little off-ramp. He's just using this to eventually circle back around and tell them just one more time and yet another way that he is God. And they understood it. They tried to kill him for it. Brothers and sisters, this revelation that Jesus, our good shepherd, is one with the Father, one in will and purpose, one in essence, this oneness is our great hope and confidence. If someone were to come up to you, let's say someone who doesn't believe in this doctrine of eternal security, someone who believes that you can lose your salvation, if they come up to you and they say, how on earth can you possibly have confidence that you will stay saved? You can say, my security is found in the fact that Jesus is protecting me with his hand, and his hand is the hand of God. God is protecting me. That's how I can have confidence. No confidence in me. Not in my flesh, not in my ability, not in my pursuit of holiness. It's in the hand of God that keeps me. And friends, listen, if Jesus were an iota of a lesser creature than being fully God, if he was in any way not one with the Father, if he was any kind of created being, even the most significant and most powerful created being, then we would not be able to have the rock-solid confidence that we have in our security. If, if he was a created being, there would be some possibility of him losing his grip on us. The only person who never lets go is God. Anybody else can let go. That's what makes God God. God's all-powerful. The Jesus of the Mormons is not a Jesus that you can have confidence in. The Jesus of the Jehovah's Witness is not a Jesus that you can trust will take you all the way home. Why? Because that Jesus is not one with God. Because Jesus is in no way less than the Father, his ability to keep us is omnipotent. The hand that, think about this, guys, the hand that created the universe, the hand that puts the stars in their place that dots the moons around Jupiter. The hand that created Jupiter is the hand that keeps you safe and takes you all the way home. That is the hand that's wrapped around the shepherd's staff that you look at as a little sheep as you walk through the valley of the shadow of death. How can you not have confidence in that hand? The hand that raises up mountains and lays down valleys that tells the ocean to come thus far, but no far farther. The, the hand that puts galaxies and quasars throughout the, the, the ends of the known universe, that is the hand that keeps us. Friend, we live in an age of anxiety and fear. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, I know the kind of fear and anxiety you're living with. And I want you to know that you feel that fear and anxiety for a reason. You should be afraid. You are in the valley of the shadow of death. You are weak and feeble. You are going to die, and you will one day face your maker. And that day, if you are found dead in your sin, will be a tragic day for your soul. The anxiety and fear that you always feel percolating up in your heart and mind 
is God's way of consistently and constantly trying to tell you that you need to look to Christ for your safety. Do you understand how practical this doctrine of the Trinity is? Sometimes, guys, listen, I'm a pastor. I love theology. I love it. But sometimes I get into some parts of theology study and I'm just like, what are we doing here? You know, this is never going to come up as I'm trying to like counsel a married couple. You know, we're using old Latin words that have 17 syllables, you know, and I'm reading this old dry book and my eyes begin to cross. But guys, listen, theology is practical. The doctrine of the Trinity is practical. The fact that Jesus and the Father are one is the great hope and confidence of our souls. Theology matters. And it matters very practically for our lives. Now, in closing, I want us to spend just a few more minutes meditating on the reality of eternality. And if you're wondering, Sean, are you sneaking in just one more point? The answer is yes, I am. One more point sneaking in. Turn with me to Matthew 25. Go to verses 31 and 32. This is Jesus, as you can probably see from the subheading in your Bible, talking about the last day, the final judgment. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. And before Him will be gathered all the nations. And He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. This is the picture of the final judgment of Christ. Those who belong to me will come with me. Those who don't will be shut out from me. Go down to verse 46. It's right there at the end of the chapter. This is kind of just the one-sentence summary. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, if you're into marking up your Bible, just go ahead and mark this up in the same way that you marked up the eternal life section earlier. I want you to see the contrast that Jesus is using here. There are only two options for every human being. Everyone will stand before Christ. No person who has ever lived or ever will live will be exempt from this coming before the throne of Christ. And and, and as Christ renders his judgment, you're a sheep, you're a goat, you will either go away into eternal life with Christ, where there will be joy forever, or you will go into eternal punishment, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. These are the two options before us. What I want to point out to you today, if you do not know Christ, is, I just want to, I don't really have anything special to say. I just want to point this to you and say, point this out to you and say, this is true. If you don't believe this, I don't think I can say anything to make you believe it here and now. But one day you will believe it. So I would consider it pretty significantly today before you reject it. Now, for the believers who are here, 
The reason why I want us to see this is because I want to point out, I just want us, I just want us to meditate on this fact, that if eternal life were up to you, you would never make it. If it was up to you, the sheep, to get to heaven, you would never get there. If you're sitting here this morning thinking, you know, it's me and my free will that's going to get me all the way home, let me disabuse you of your delusion. If you were left up to your own free will, you would be in hell today. Left to your own devices, you will never make it to heaven. Sheep don't make it through the valley of the shadow of death by their own strength and power. They can't make it through the forest when the forest is full of wolves. You must understand, Christian, that salvation is from first to last a work of God. We already considered this last week. Before the foundations of the world, God chose you. You didn't choose God. I know it feels like you chose God. Raise your hand if you want to receive Christ, and you raise your hand. You're like, man, I'm totally sovereign in this. No. God planned for you to do that before you were born. God chose you in eternity's past and predestined you for salvation. And then he sent his son to die on the cross for you. His son came and he called the sheep and he purchased them with his own blood. You didn't purchase yourself. You couldn't pay the price for your sins. The shepherd had to die like one of his sheep in order to purchase us back into the flock of God. And then... It's not like he just stopped there and said, okay, now now that I died for you, now you have to do the rest. You know, I I gave you a leg up. I gave you an advance. You know, you got to take the business from here, you know. No. He gave us his Holy Spirit. God, the Son, could not be with us present here in person because he's at the right hand of the Father. So he sent God, the Holy Spirit, not to sit next to us, but to live inside of us to convict us of our sin. When we don't know what to pray, the Holy Spirit is there helping us to pray. When we're living and doing stuff we're not supposed to, the Holy Spirit says, you're not going to get to heaven like that. And then you listen and then you change. There's a, a famous literary trope that's found in novels and movies and TV shows. And you, you know it. It goes something like this. For whatever reason, somebody is about to fall off of the edge of a cliff. Right? They're going to they're gonna go over the edge and, and tumble down to their death. But right before they fall, another character reaches out and grabs them. Right? You guys seen the movie Cliffhanger, Sylvester Stallone? You know what I'm talking about. The other character grabs them, keeping them from falling to their certain death. Now, let's treat this trope like a parable, okay? If we see ourselves rightly in the gospel, we will see ourselves as the ones who are hanging over the edge of the cliff. We, in our sin, we have tumbled over the edge and we are about to go down and meet our doom in the bottomless pit of God's wrath. In this parable, the hand that reaches out and grabs us, the hand that saves us from certain death, is God in Christ by the power of God of the Spirit. Now, very often in these movies, the person who reaches out and grabs them, you know, you got to build the suspense and the tension, and the person who grabs, there's this moment where the camera pans up to them, and their face is in anguish, and there's drool, and there's tears in their eyes, and they go, I don't know if I can hang on. You know what I'm talking about? I can't hang on any longer. Jesus will never say that. 
forever. He can hang on forever. His grip will never grow tired. He will never experience fatigue. He will never even come close to letting you go. He can't let go. Even when you let go, he will not let you go. If you let go of his hand, his hand will keep a firm grip on you. I need to make a plug for just good, theologically sound music this morning. This song that we're about to sing together, He Will Hold Me Fast, it's like someone read my sermon and then was like, all right, now it's time to take this inspiration and write this song, right? Really, it's like somebody just read John chapter 10, verses 22 through 30, and then said, hey, I'm going to write a song. When I fear my faith will fail, I think I'm going to let go. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, the wolves, the thieves, the robbers, when it seems like they're going to win, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold. Do you believe that? I hope you do. If not, you are living in extreme ignorance. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold. But he will hold me fast. Those he saves are his delight. Christ will hold me fast. Keep it together. Precious in his holy sight. How precious? He died to save us. He will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. An unbreakable promise. Bought by him at such a cost. He will hold me fast. For my life He bled and died. Christ will hold me fast. Justice has been satisfied. He will hold me fast. Raised with him to endless life, eternal life, life that will never perish. He will hold me fast till our faith is turned to sight when he comes at last. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so, he will hold me fast. Luke, come and lead us as we pray through this song, a prayer of thanksgiving to God. Let's stand and get ready to sing.